0: in second Corinthians chapter 4 fast fascinating wonderful chapter because it's talking of uh, Paul's kind of burying his heart about what new covenant ministry is all about and what what's important to Paul as the preacher of the gospel and in so doing he he, he tells us some very very impertinent things that apply to us in our day and um, would to God that the whole church took these things to heart. L- let me read a few verses, and then we'll pray, and then we will look at verse 3 in particular. He says, in, uh, to give you the context, therefore, since we have this ministry, 2 Corinthians 4.1, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, literally the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. So there is Paul's New Covenant ministry, and today we'll be looking at this idea of the veiled gospel in the minds of the perishing and what God's plan is uh, for uh, that situation. Okay? But before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the fact that we have indeed found mercy, that Your Gospel penetrated into our hard hearts, and the light of the glory of Christ shone into our hearts and minds, and we saw that what Uh, the preachers who are preaching of the gospel was indeed the truth and having believed, found life and salvation. Lord, we then gather together to be taught, to share with one another, to pray with one another, to fellowship with one another, to admonish one another, and to listen to Your Word. And we do again pray for the dear saints that are uh, scattered around the, the world who listen to these Sunday school classes on the internet. We pray that you would also bring fellowship to them, encouragement to them, hope to them, and may their hearts be filled with joy and thanksgiving as they hear your word and um, contemplate the great salvation that you've given them. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. In verse, we did verse 2 and pointed out that there's nothing cryptic. There's a word, remember that word, uh, uh, where we get our word cryptic from in verse 2. The Gospel isn't cryptic. The New Testament ministry should never be cryptic. It should be open. It should be straightforward. It should be clear. The Word of God should never be adulterated. It should be taught in its clarity and in its authority without any equivocation. The truth ought to be openly manifested and uh, the new covenant minister should live in a way that commends the truth of the gospel. Now, verse 3 says that if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now, if you remember the context, Paul has been carrying on an extended analogy that began clear back earlier in chapter 3 with Moses on Sinai. And so, he's making a contrast. Moses went up on Sinai and he had a veil when he came down. So the people, because of their hard hearts, aren't seeing the glory. And the veiling, as we saw, was caused by the hardness of the people's hearts. And Moses, when he turned to the Lord, and there was an interesting way that Paul used that. Moses turned to the Lord and he unveiled himself and spoke to the Lord. And then, Paul takes that and applies it to us by saying, if we turn to the Lord, as in repentance and faith, we'll be unveiled. Okay? And, and so the one who turns to the Lord is the one who sees the glory and who is the one that the Holy Spirit is bringing liberty. That, that was our context in chapter 3. So now he's going back again. So having dealt with what it's like when we turn to the Lord and what the ministry of the new covenant is like, and what the preaching of the gospel is all about. Now he's going back and talking about another situation. What about the ones who have not turned to the Lord? What are we going to do about that? And here he says, in that case, for the case of the perishing, the gospel is veiled, but it's not veiled because of Paul's uh, failure to preach it. It's veiled because of their heart. it's very much like the situation under the Old Covenant when the hard-hearted were reading Moses and there was a veil and they couldn't understand it and they couldn't see it because of the hardness of their heart. So the perishing, those who are yet unconverted, have hearts that are veiled. And if, I'd have to say this, okay? I want to make some applications to the contemporary situation if every preacher in America understood what we're t- teaching here, I don't think anybody would do anything any different than what Paul does, which is preach the truth clearly. All right? Because all of this manipulation and entertaining uh, the lost and trying to you know make the service more relevant, make it more fun, make it more interesting, dumb down the sermons, preach on something that they want to hear... Um, is never, ever, ever gonna unveil anybody's heart, okay? Because you, you might decide to get religion, and you might decide, well, maybe I'll go to church, but your heart's still veiled, and and it's never gonna get unveiled by any means than the Holy Spirit converting people and they're turning to the Lord. Amen. That's the only unveiling that's ever ever happens. It's a spiritual unveiling, and um, now. Is there a means that God uses? Yes, the means is the proclamation of the truth. Now, if you think about it, the Gospel itself really isn't that. You don't need a Ph.D. to understand the Gospel. Is that right? I mean, just think about how simple it actually is if you boil it down to the, the terms that everybody needs to know. Well, let's just go over that and, and, and think about it. What was... What's the gospel all about? Well, the law says that the soul that sins must die. And the law says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, right, in in the Hebrews. So the first thing that everybody needs to know is that they've broken God's law and that there needs to be a sacrifice made for their sin or they will perish for eternity, all right? Is that hard to understand? No, it's not hard to understand. That's not. I mean, it's offensive. Okay. I mean, the only thing that makes it difficult, uh, if I may say so, is that people in our lost condition. I remember what it was like. I wasn't converted till I was 20 years old, so I spent plenty of years in in lost condition. And you think, why would God be so picky? You know. Okay. I mean, God is God. Can't He do whatever He wants to do? Why, why would He say that you have to have blood shed for sin? Why would God say that? And it just kind of goes... because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But it is what it says in the Bible. And it is true. It's what it says in the book of, Hebrew, book of Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sins. Okay, so that's a very simple concept. And then the other idea, then, is the Gospel side of it. That's the law. The Gospel says that what we could not do, and the law could not do because of our sinful condition, God did, sending His Son. Okay, And Jesus Christ, we need to tell people who He is, that He existed as God and with God from all eternity, came into human history, born of a virgin, He lived a sinless life, and fully kept the law that we broke, and that he willingly laid down his own life for our sins. And that he shed his blood to avert God's wrath against our sin. And that Jesus Christ proved who he was by predicting, by many ways, but one of the most profound ways he demonstrated the truth <coughs> was predicting his own resurrection. That is the most profound of all miracles, by the way. In fact, It says that the Jews demanded a sign. Remember in the Gospels, they they said, show us a sign. And he said the only one sign that would be given. Now, he did many signs, but there was only one that he obligated himself to. And this was the definitive sign beyond all other signs. And that is that as Jonah was three days, remember what he said? So will the Son of Man be three days in the earth? And And he said that in several different ways. So that was his prediction of his own death, burial, and resurrection. So that is the definitive sign. And God has not obligated Himself to giving any further sign than that one. It isn't that He doesn't do so. And He can. He did it in my case. I didn't deserve it, but God did a a sign at at the point of my conversion. Uh, But He wouldn't have had to because all He did was Jesus was raised from the dead. If I don't believe that sign, then God has not obligated Himself to any other sign. And Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, people have investigated this um, for a couple hundred years. Some very inquisitive and intelligent people have decided to investigate the evidence to see if it was actually true from a legal standpoint. Now, one of the ones who did that in like 1905 or thereabouts is a guy named Morrison who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone. You can still get that book. And there was a guy who said, okay, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to look at evidence and see if there's any reason to think that this Christian claim of the resurrection of Christ is credible at all. And he came to the conclusion it was, and he converted to Christianity based on the evidence of the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. So, that's all that needs to be believed and known and confessed and confessed. Confess with your mouth Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, and you should be saved. All right? Now, why would that be veiled? Why would somebody not be able to understand that? There's no uh, reason other than spiritual reason. It's not because it's so hopelessly complex. It's not like Scientology or, or something like that where you have all of these levels and you work your way to the, or a Masonic Lodge. You've got to work your way through. Works, 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 works. Figure this out. Pay to get to another level or work to get to another level. There's, all, there's these cryptic secret religions. But Christianity is absolutely in the open. Here's what we believe. And the things I just told you have been confessed by Christians for
1: 2,000 years.
0: Okay? And this isn't uh, a cleverly devised fable or anything like it. Yes, Robert.
1: I was talking with a uh, gentleman last night. He'd been to a a modern gospel Muslim training seminar. And basically what came out of it was he said, you know, really, you know, Islam is is so complex or so hard of heart. All we can do is be nice to them, do good things for them, and pray for them that God would, you know, give them visions and dreams. And I said, you know... Um, I think we should be nice to them, we should pray for them, do good things for them, but that we should also preach the gospel (laughs) to them and let God do the convicting. Let God save them through that. Yes.
0: That's, you know, it's a very simple idea, but you know, Robert, it's kind of a revolutionary thing when somebody comes to understand that. and, And that's what Paul is telling us right here about this veiledness. It's a revolutionary idea when you realize that the only way anybody will be unveiled is through the preaching of the gospel and God removing the veil by His Holy Spirit, all right? And then they see it. And once you know that, it takes away. I think it it helps evangelism greatly because it takes away all the fear that you're going to be the one to muck it up. Okay. Remember, Paul says we preach not ourselves but Jesus Christ. Okay. If I thought the message was me, I'd be very uh, cowardly <laughs> because I'd think I'm probably for sure going to get it wrong and there's going to there's be something about me that they don't like or something that I said or something won't work. But if I'm not preaching myself, that's not the message. The message is who Jesus is, and God's going to supernaturally use that. In fact, Paul said that God would use that even when people that did it weren't all that great, like the people that preached Christ out of strife and out of vain motives and whatever in Philippians, but Paul re- rejoiced that Christ was preached. And uh, there are some of you here who were converted under preaching from people that weren't that great, but at least they got Jesus out there and you, and you believed it, all right? So that's a liberating thing, and I totally agree, Robert. If you look at a, a people group, say like Muslims or... Uh, Anybody, you know, Hindus, atheists, whatever kind of people you might think about, you'd think, well, there's no way they're going to listen to this. But God converts people from all different groups, including Muslims, yes.
1: So we were at a coffee shop last night, and um, there was a Muslim guy, his name is Ahmed, who um, was overhearing what we were talking about. And uh, he came up to me after we were leaving, and he says... um, Hey, can we meet next week? I'd like to bring you a, a little CD and a um, simple-to-read Quran, and I'd like to talk to you about um, you know, Islam. <laughs> so I'm going to meet with this gentleman uh, next Saturday night, and um, you know, God willing, I'm going to share the gospel with him and <laughs> let God do the work. He can
0: tell you about Islam, and you can tell him about Jesus. Exactly. Good. Thank you. Good, good, good opportunity. Yeah, really, the, the key thing is just get out and talk to people. You know, that's all you can do. Talk to them, and give you, that's what creates the opportunities to share the gospel. Now, um, so the, our gospel here, by the way, is is the gospel. There's only one gospel. I hope you know that. Uh, there are people saying there's two or three different gospels, but it's just false. It's just bad teaching. There's one gospel, and when the gospel here is in synonymously parallel relationship with the, with the truth. Notice verse. Manifestation of the truth. And then if our gospel, talking about without having changed topics. So the gospel is also the truth. It's the basic truth that we have to preach, proclaim, and share. And it's veiled to the perishing. Veiled to the perishing. Um, Let's see. Okay, Robert, um, could you look up 2 Corinthians 2.15? 2.
1: 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing.
0: Okay, so that topic was already raised earlier. Now he's returning to it. But it, again, back in chapter 2, it was the same idea we're talking about now that the gospel is either a sweet fragrance uh, to people as they hear it and believe it, or it's an odorous thing to the perishing because they find it offensive. And and if if people find the gospel offensive, it's not proof that you didn't do a very good job of sharing it. Now, it is possible to give needless offense. All right? What would be an example of a needless offense? Well, uh, uh, let me. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9, that he becomes all things to all men, that he might win some. Now the seeker boomer, that's their, that's the one verse that they really, really cherish. Okay, that, That's the verse they care the most about of all the verses in the Bible. And they take that to the extreme of trying to make the church like the world, and that's how you become all things to all men. But that's clearly not what Paul had in mind. I wrote a little essay about this that you can find online, but... What he meant was that when he, for instance when he went to went to Jerusalem to preach to the Jews, he followed the he went to the feast and he did what he what Jews do, so they didn't go in there and offend him. That's all. Yes. To
2: what degree did
0: Paul go to Jerusalem and do what the Jews did, sacrifice uh you know? Well yeah, what did, you can read about it in Acts. Where was that in Acts twenty one? Yeah, the question is, what degree did Paul do what they did? He actually went a little further than most of us would think. Where is that? one? Was that Acts 20, 21? Paul's he to yeah, he purified himself. He announced and it to, the, uh, to the, in the temple that when the days of his purification were going to be done, and he had other guys that were having about the same time. Yeah. So he did some things that are quite Jewish, actually.
3: So if we were to look at the contemporary Christian uh, uh, music uh, scene uh, starting with the late 60s in which Christians got saved and then they decided to form uh, Christian rock and roll bands and eventually you know, compete with secular bands, uh, w- would that be uh, a legitimate way of um, expressing what Paul did to be all things to all people?
0: Well if you look at what happened in the 70's the contemporary music of the 70's frankly was pretty good Uh, the most popular contemporary artist was Keith Green in the 70's and his stuff was convicting gospel music does anybody remember Keith Green? yeah and I don't don't know that he was trying I don't even think his stuff was trying to be attractive to the world it was to be convicting to Christians you know and and so it was just the music that Christians used to express their faith. But what's the today? What's happened is if you take take Keith Green, just listen to him. All right, it's convicting. It's about the cross. It's about Christ. It glorifies God. Now you take I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert about what's out there today, but you do get. The music—I've heard some of it that they use, for example, on Saddleback. I've listened to some of that. There's no content. There's, you know, there's just no content, and it's designed to just be fluffy stuff within the church. And the other thing I would say was when Paul was going to Jerusalem, that's not what he was doing within the church. That's what he was doing to reach the Jews. Okay, and so when you're going to somebody else's stage. Uh, you try to avoid offending them as possible, and I can understand that. But uh, changing the nature of the church itself then is not becoming all things to all men. It's an attack against the the integrity of the church. So, I don't know. Like what Robert's doing. You go to the coffee shop where people talk about religious ideas, and you do what they do in a coffee shop. That's becoming all things to all men. All right? There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Or uh, some of you guys go to, I know Mark Orlean does it. They go to the university where they have like a soapbox thing. Okay, where the atheists or whoever wants to get up there and tell their ideas. So the Christians go into their arena and do what they do in their arena. Only they get up on the soapbox and tell the Christian idea. It would be like Paul going to Athens where they talk about ideas. So he goes to Mars Hill and talks about ideas. So that's what it means, but the content it can't be changed. See where I? The problem, even with music, I don't. The Bible doesn't dictate what instruments one can play. It doesn't say anything about that. In fact, if you go in the Old Testament, they played every kind of instrument that anybody knew of in that era of history. Like what is it? Psalm 50. They praise him on this. The timbrel, the goes through a whole list of instruments. They're using all of them. So I, I just don't believe. The Bible restricts what instruments can be used. But the message can't be changed for the sake of entertaining people.
3: One of the most uh, subtle things that uh, I discovered they had me do when I was with one of these Latter Rain churches is the lyrics of the songs that they were singing were confessing Latter doctrine.
0: Yeah, Right. So, your music will usually tell what's important to you. And so, you you know, uh, that was one of the, uh, Bill, uh, having been around in that era, (laughs) I remember some of those things. Remember all of the uh, fight the devil music and um, uh, take dominion music, you know, and kingdom music, and we're gonna rule and we're gonna claim this and, uh, and all of that. Yeah, so people's doctors come into their music. Okay, so the Gospel should never be veiled because of the preacher. The Gospel doesn't cease to be the truth because of the sinfulness of human blindness. Now, let's, let's talk about that. Human blindness to the truth is a spiritual condition. It's not an intellectual one. And um, it's spiritual, not intellectual. I think one of the great evidences of that was there was a guy, this one was really kind of a a strange one, but have you heard of Pincus Lapid? Anybody else heard of him? Pincus Lapid? He was a, a Jewish guy who researched whether Christ was raised from the dead, sort of like that Morrison did, who wrote Who Moved the Stone, and actually came to the conclusion that Christ was raised from the dead, but decided not to convert. Is that right, Carl? And so... There he intellectually was able to come to see the truth, but the spiritual blindness kept him from actually embracing it. I think he just rationalized it. Well, that's for the... Yeah, tell tell about Pincus.
3: Well, I have another story, actually. A, a good friend of mine um, went to Brandeis University, which is a Jewish university, and the professor there, a Jewish professor, explained the gospel, he said, as well as any evangelical he ever heard it. <laughs> really? But then... He ended up his presentation by saying, "But I don't believe a word of it." So really? see, the, it wasn't that he didn't understand it; it was that he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it. That, yeah. that was the whole issue. Yeah, yeah. So
0: faith is a spiritual issue, not just an intellectual one. And I can, I've seen other evidence of that. By oh, I mentioned one last Sunday in my sermon. And I'm not sure about this, where this guy is at with the Lord. But this uh, Hebrew scholar who wrote the commentary, one of my commentaries on Exodus. Follows this J-E-D-P, you know, uh, and it's so annoying because he has a little section on there. He says, okay, the Yahweh has stuck this one in and the priest. The priest." The, he says this, the reason Aaron had the staff in this verse is because the priest wanted to get Aaron in there. Okay, so he's, he's, he's doing all this source stuff and redactions, and it's just like, ah, go away, go away, I don't want to hear this. But then when he says, okay, now here's my commentary, and he, and he nails it. He just just great. He he gets it absolutely right when he gets done with his stupid source theory. Then he says, but here's what the text says and here's what it means. Okay, good. (laughs) And and another one, and I mentioned this before, was when I was back in the 80s, uh, I wanted to refute the word of faith movement. So I spent a whole, I don't know, like eight, nine months writing a book that never was published because I wasn't a good writer um, on faith. But in the research for that non-published book, I was reading uh, the entry in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Kittle, as it's called, and the entry under faith was written by Rudolf Boltzmann. Rudolf Boltzmann, the demythologizing the Bible guy. You know, that there really were no demons or miracles or any of this stuff. But in his entry under faith, because this is a in these big encyclopedias, they have all different scholars that, that, that write. He nailed what faith was in the New Testament. He knew what it was. He could explain it perfectly. He just didn't have it. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and he had a, a better grasp of what the New Testament writers meant by faith than a lot of these false teachers did. So it's an interesting phenomenon. But just like you said, uh, it's one thing to have it all figured out because you're a good reader. And it's another thing to have faith that you embrace in your heart by God's grace. Okay, now let me hand out some verses to be read, and then I have something I need to look up. Um, what, do you want to read a verse? You will? Okay, I don't know your name. Angie. Uh, Angie, if you could do Matthew 11:25 and 26. Paul? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Michelle, 1 Thessalonians 1 1.5. And Dale, 2 Thessalonians 2,
1: 9-11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure.
3: Yeah, so
0: there is a, the idea of hidden and revealing. The veiled versus revealing. He veiled them or hid them from the wise and prudent. Now, who were the wise and prudent in that context? Well, it was the scribes and Pharisees, and they I remember just before Jesus said that when that prayer, he had he had said that the wicked people that the, were the enemies of the Jews in the past would have repented, had they seen the things that these guys saw, and and so he pronounced a woe. and then he says, God uh, to the Father, you veiled these things or hid them from wise and prudent, and revealed them to babe. Why? Because it was it was seemed uh, it was according to God's good pleasure to do that I remember that may be startling sometimes when you just read it and think about it so that's that's really kind of hard that's kind of startling I that one I every time I read that verse I have to think about my experience in in seminary where um, my, my favorite New Testament professor Dr. Versiput, was teaching through Matthew and I loved it I loved his classes because he just he taught the Bible fact, he taught us how to read the Bible, he taught us how to interpret the Bible, and he had us learn the Bible. And the final for the class was uh, interesting. He says, the final is going to be, you have to come to class with no Bible in hand and tell me the plot of of, of a gospel, and you don't know which one is going to, I'm going to give you two to choose from, but you don't know which two they're going to be. So we had to learn at least three gospels. And know everything in there, and not using our Bible, explain the plot. And what he meant by that is how, how the narrative develops. So, it's, let's say if he gave Matthew, you'd have to be able to say, okay, the prologue of Matthew is a genealogy, and the reason it's a genealogy is to prove that Jesus is the son of David. And then here's how Matthew developed his theme. And you, just boom, 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 you go through the whole thing. Well, how would you like to prepare for that test? <laughs> Okay, so, so what happened was, and I was in, trying, and I was writing my senior paper in order to get, to graduate and get my degree. This is sort of their version of a master's thesis, was you had to take, an, an, teach systematic theology from the point of view of an integrating motif. And I chose honoring God. So I'm working on that, and I didn't have time to study much for that final, so came time for the final. I thought, now what am I going to do? Alright. Um, uh, Okay, Luke is hopeless. Uh, Mark is not doing much better. This was back in the 90s. So I chose Matthew and John, because I figured if I knew two, uh, you know, No, wait a second. Yeah, no, I chose Matthew and Luke to try to get ready for, gave up on Mark and figured if he he does John, I'm going to do it, and I'm not even going to study. I I basically have John in my mind, where I know every chapter was in every chapter of John, and that was true back then, because I'd taught through John a couple times. So I didn't study John, I studied Matthew and Luke, and so the final came, and one of them was John. (sighs) But anyhow, Dr. Versaput will just teach through the Bible and explain how to read. What, to learn, the, the, to have a good theology, you learn how to read. Because the authors are telling you what they mean with their words. Learn how to read. So we're doing this one, and that, that verse that Angie read, we came to that, and this guy put his hand up and says, well, that can't be right. <laughs> and, the, and Dr. Vershapit says, what do you mean it can't be right? Well, God wouldn't hide anything from anybody, would he? And so um, Dr. Versa put, you know, he always had his glass, reading glasses. He was over 50. And he looks over his glasses. Read it again. He says, he points to the student, you read it. And the guy read it. So what does it mean if it doesn't mean what it says? <laughs> then his student goes. <laughs> 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 so, and, uh, and he says, well, if you don't like that verse, you're really not going to like it when we get to John. <laughs> Okay, anyhow, uh, next verse was um, 1 Corinthians one eighteen.
3: For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God.
0: Okay, so you see the same thing in both of those verses. The one in Matthew 11 says, uh, hid from the wise and prudent, revealed to babes. And the one in 1 Corinthians says, foolishness to the perishing, Perish, perishing, but to the ones that are being saved, what does it say? It was the power of God? The power of God. So there is this, the, the gospel is a, is a dividing, it's a divisive thing in and of itself. And, and Jesus said that. He said, don't believe, think that I came to bring peace, but division. And, and Jesus brought division. He really, in fact, he really, really brought division. He divided Judaism between those who believed that he was the Messiah and became the Christian church and those who didn't, because all the early Christians were Jewish. Okay. (laughs) And then the next passage was um, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.5.
1: For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you... Just as you know, what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake.
0: Okay, so there when it talks about the gospel didn't come in word only, but power and full conviction, and then he mentions what kind of men we proved, and it's very similar to what we're reading here. The power that Paul is talking about is the power of God to unveil the hearts of, of hard hearts of sinners. Okay? And, and power and full conviction. So if we want to have power, and you, you hear a lot of uh, people talking about we need Power, and generally uh, you hear that in the context of sort of a Benny Hinn kind of approach. Is, is, it that, is that what you think of when you hear people talking about power? I mean, I think of Benny Hinn. And he goes, power. I think I've seen that happen. Have you ever seen that on TV? Where, where they go, they get a bunch of people in the front and they go, power, like that. And they go, boom, 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 boom. They they go down like cordwood, you know. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> now the question would be: the question is, is that what Paul was talking about? No, he's talking about the power of God to penetrate a hard-hearted sinner and to bring somehow the light goes on. This is the truth. This is real. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is Savior, and we believe. That's the power of God, and it's the most important one. Can God do signs and wonders? Yes, but the only way you know a sign is valid is if it's in the context of somebody pointing you to Christ in the gospel. All right. If you don't point to Christ, the sign is... uh, I I told a story to a couple people uh, about my conversion. There was actually a sign that God did when I was converted. When uh, Diane, my wife, at the time my fiancée, was sharing the gospel with me because she got saved before I did. I wouldn't listen to her, and I always argued, 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 and I was a better arguer than she was. And uh, I still am, by the way. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) saying, not to my credit. (laughs) No, actually, we don't argue that much anymore. Uh, we've been sanctified. Oh, by the way, today is my 30, our 35th wedding anniversary. Oh. So, thank you. <laughs> Diane's in Iowa, but she'll be come back this afternoon. But anyhow, yeah, 35 years, so I guess our arguments weren't that bad. But anyhow, um, she's, uh, finally I realized she was sold on this uh, religion, and so I decided to break off our engagement because I didn't want to m- marry a religious person. Okay, so uh, I said, "Do you have one more time, one more chance to tell me why you're getting into this religion?" And that's it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna listen to this anymore. I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. And she, she had been at this retreat where they were, literally, they were, they had preachers, and then they'd go all witnessing. Right? This was in 1971. And she said, "I don't know. I don't. I knew. I don't know the Bible." I have no idea. And and, and she said, But I, the preacher there was saying that that the rivers are all gonna turn into blood. I said, What? <laughs> kind of a stupid thing. What? Oh man, I was just I'd been in I'd been in church way more than she had ever been, and I know rivers turning into blood. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. They asked, No way is that in the Bible. So she says, Well, I don't know. So she got a Bible and it had no marks or anything, it was just pages she says, I don't know where anything is. And she she opened it and it fell open to the page. And she goes, oh, look, it's right here. And she handed it to me. (laughs) See, she didn't need superior argumentative skills when the Holy Spirit was at work. (laughs) And, well, the rumors are going to turn to blood. And then she started telling me something else she'd heard one of those preachers say, and I said, I never heard that either. Where's that in the Bible? And it happened again. It fell open to the page. It's a totally different part. Two times in a row. And before, I asked any, before she asked any more questions, I said, I think I need to pray. I, need, I, need, I, need to, I knew that was true, and I needed to repent. Those signs, they, they were miraculous signs, but it was in the context of whether I was going to accept the gospel or not. It wasn't to impress me with anything. It was God apprehending my rebellious heart. So He revealed His truth to a babe that didn't deserve it. I actually was a very nasty person; didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve. God didn't have to do that. He could have left. He could have perfectly justly not shown no signs to me, and let me just go off like I wanted to. So I thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord. God is so merciful. <laughs> I was really hard-hearted. I needed a sign to believe.
3: Okay, a bit. Yeah. You mean your wife brought one person to the Lord and you're it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> she hasn't had a very productive ministry. Not bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, we, a year later, we got married on uh, July 1st, 1972. Two, we got married and it was 101 degrees that day so it was a lot nicer today and there was no air conditioning in the church and I had a black tuxedo on that was a hot wedding but we managed to live married 35 years I mean that literally 2 Thessalonians 2 9 through 11 alright enough of that I'm out of that topic alright 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. This is where Paul is talking about the lawless one. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a
1: deluding influence so that they will believe what is false.
0: Yeah, and it says in the Greek, literally, they'll believe the lie. Well, that section, and I preached on it recently in Thessalonians. That that's, that is very instructive, and it fits into what we were just talking about—signs. It talks about lying signs or false signs. A false sign isn't a, a magician trick or sleight of hand. It's a real sign that teaches a false message. All right. Now there are basically two messages revealed there in Thessalonians: the truth. Okay, the ones who did not receive the truth, which Paul just connected with the gospel here—2 Corinthians 4:2 and 3. So if you believe the truth, which is the gospel, then you're enlightened to the truth of the Bible and you believe it and so on. But if you don't believe that, Satan does signs to convince people of the lie. And the lie is the very lie that was told by Satan in the garden. Hath God said, you're not going to die. You can be like God. That's the lie. Satan is very good at telling it. He's been telling it for thousands of years. And in the end, he will raise up signs and wonders that are going to be so profound that people who haven't believed the truth will be totally captivated by the lie. Yes?
1: And the New King James, um, starting in verse 10, it says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, verse 11. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie.
0: Yep, that's a good translation. If I wasn't using the New America Standard, I would use the New King James. Those are the two best English translations. MacArthur was using the New King James and now he's using the New America Standard, mainly because of the Greek text behind it. But um, they're both good. In fact, when I'm preaching, oftentimes if I don't think the New American Standard has it right, if I go check the New King James, it will. So it's very good, very good Bible. Now, um, I was going to quote this Garland. Excellent commentary, and here's what he says. What veils his gospel? That, that which Paul absolutely refuses to compromise, the scandal of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 2, the veiling has no, nothing to do with the particular way Paul communicates the gospel. That it is too cryptic, too heavy, or too lackluster. It has to do instead with the fundamental nature of a gospel that strikes Greeks as foolishness and Jews as scandalous. This fundamental nature is that God defeats death and evil and reconciles the world through Christ's sacrifice, which puts an end to all human boasting. The Messiah whom God sent to save was not a figure of glory who deposed Israel's pagan oppressors and restored her fortunes in the world. Instead, he suffered and died on a cross. And such a fate made a mockery of Jewish expectations and effectively nailed those to the cross. It had become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Christian gospel offends those who want a more tasteful salvation plan. Then he goes on, Paul's own sufferings also veiled his gospel because people did not want a suffering apostle who looks like a prisoner of war led in chains any more than they want a suffering Messiah who invites them to take up the cross and follow him. most fancy worldly triumph, success and preeminence that comes at minimal cost and exertion. They want something for nothing, and such an attitude makes them easy prey for the unscrupulous peddler who panders to their selfish aspirations. Nothing has changed, has it? Now, if you read the entire book of 2 Corinthians, you see that lying behind Paul's self-defense is the fact that they were scandalized by his sufferings. And later on, he gives a litany of his sufferings. Say, so yes, that's true. Beatings and scourgings and shipwreck and all these things. And the the super apostles, the ones who fancied themselves to be more spiritual than Paul, they looked pretty good compared to... Can you imagine what he must have looked like after all those stonings and beatings? In fact, it, they, it says in 2 Corinthians 10 that he was unimpressive, contemptible. So the power is in the cross itself, not just the eloquence or... Uh, savvy of the preacher. Now let's go to verse 4. In whose case, now it talks about the perishing who are veiled, in in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Alright, so now it says here that the God of this world, now the word world there in the Greek is the word for age. Does anybody's translation translate What's your new King James say?
1: Whose minds the God of this age has blinded.
0: It gets it right. There you go. Age is the right word. Okay? Now, it's it's talking about the world in the sense that uh, during this time period from Pentecost to the return of Christ, this age is characterized by being under delusion and deception. All right, so that's why it says that. But it, the God, now who is the God of this age? Satan, right? I think that's the only the only being that he could have in mind that would fit that is Satan himself, who is deceiving the world. It says in First, oh, I got maybe, maybe I better wait here. I probably have that. Yeah, that's a cross reference. So I was going to give one of the cross references. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. it Says right. So the God of this age has blinded um, has blinded the minds. And um, the word minds there, noemata, uh, uh, probably has to do with corrupt human thoughts, the thinking. So the mind is corrupted. Yes.
3: Question. How does this parallel with uh, like the soils of the heart? Because I see there are some parallels, and because when it comes down yeah. to it, I think that uh, the person actually sees the truth as it is, as, yeah. as far as the unveiling is concerned.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. The the, the parable of the so- soils. And one isn't one of the soils the ones where Satan takes away the the seed before it takes any root. Somebody want to look that up? Bible test. Who can find it? Parable of sores, sores of seeds, or the soils, is more accurately. But it, okay, so while, you, while, while somebody finds that, the God of this world blinded minds, I say the minds of Noemata, corrupt human thoughts, of the unbelieving. The un- unbelieving are Satan's subject. Satan has a church, and it's a real big one. It's called the Broadway, the Broad Gate, and the Broad Path that leads to destruction. All right? That's his church. And the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light. Now, um, there's three. Just to talk about the um, grammatical construction of this sentence, the the word "light" is qualified by three genitives in the Greek, and we've talked about that case before. The genitive. Uh, The light is of the gospel. The light is of the glory, and the light is of Christ. There's three usages. Yes.
3: Um, as, I, as we were reading this, um, it's interesting that uh, Satan's goal is to um, deceive the mind so that they wouldn't believe the gospel. And I'm thinking of the passage in Peter where it says that Satan is like a, a roaring lion seeking who he could devour. And I'm yeah. wondering if that connection is he devours those so they don't see yeah. the gospel and the truth.
0: Yeah, the, ta- uh, the ultimate attack is always against the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Satan has... Very, very open-minded about how he keeps people away from the gospel. All right? It, Satan doesn't mind, by the way, if a person is happy, healthy, and lives to be a hundred. Doesn't bother Satan, as long as they don't believe the gospel. Okay? It, 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 the false spiritual warfare doctrine that many espouse basically says that what Satan is doing is attacking our temporal well-being all the time. Okay? And so therefore, spiritual warfare is about binding and casting things down so that we can have well-being, so that we can be rich, so that we can be happy, so that everything goes well. Because they, they, they fancy that that's what Satan's attack is against. But that's not what the Bible says. Satan's attack is against the Gospel. Against the truth. And so... Uh, Satan would be very happy for a group to believe false, a false gospel and be very healthy and wealthy while they do it. <laughs> Alright? I hope that makes sense. Uh, bring, bring it over to Kim there. Yes, you do, because the people want to hear what you say. Actually, that makes so much sense. Um, it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why wouldn't Satan want Everybody to be rich. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom, Jesus said? And after after he, and then he says, with God, all things are possible. But yeah, Satan doesn't mind people being rich, he just doesn't want them to believe the gospel. So spiritual warfare can be characterized. And by the way, I, I, if you haven't done so yet, you've got to read MacArthur's book, The Truth War. You got it. There it is. All right. I'm telling you, you won't be sad that you read that book, because he talks about what spiritual warfare is and what the war is all about and why we need to get engaged in the war. We cannot declare neutrality. Now, um, so the battle is for against the truth of the... Yes? One bad thing about that book is it's very convicting. When he says we cannot allow these false teachers to go unmolested in the church... Yeah. It means that we need to speak out either to them or against them. Yeah, he was, he was. It's based roughly on the book of Jude. But he said, you can't allow it. We cannot allow because these people are sent by Satan into the church to sabotage the, the, the work of God. And when we just let it go, because. See, uh, another thing I like about MacArthur's book is that he points out that the current milieu, the current value system, if you will, uh, that is prevalent in evangelicalism is that the most godly Christian thing to do is just get along with everybody no matter what they say or what they do, right?
2: Unity
0: at the cost of God. Yeah, unity at all costs. And therefore, um, uh, what MacArthur says is that if we adopt that, if we just allow that, uh, unity at all costs, and, and God is happy with people who don't contend for the faith and angry with ones who do, it'll destroy the gospel. The attack is against the gospel, and that is that, Satan's tactic. And if you read the book of Jude, he tells us to contend, to fight the get into the fight. So it's actually a godly thing to fight the battle. Okay.
3: Did you want to follow up for the people that are listening about the Satan? Did no, you find it? it? Yeah. All right, good. Okay. Yes, I do. In Mark uh, 4.14, he says, The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown in them.
0: Okay, so that's that's a valid uh, cross-reference to this one. Satan takes the word away immediately. Doesn't take root. Okay, so the blinded minds... Mind, by the way, is the place of the battle. The battle is for our minds. The battle is about what we believe. And if Satan can't stop us from believing the Gospel at all, like he does in the case of those where the seed was sown and, and he steals it away, then he'll, then he'll fight for thing within the Christian faith to get us into some error. You cannot get into any error without it harming you. Did I say that in a double negative? <laughs> I think I did, didn't I? In Greek, you get to do that uh, okay, let me say it correctly, as if Dick had got the red pen out on that one. Uh, <laughs> he's got to he came prepared all right, the red pen. The correct way to saying it is that if you do get into air of any sort, it will harm you, and then so when I say that, I know the people. Say, come back and say, well, do you think you know all the truth? Do you think that, there's, that absolutely everything you believe is actually true and exactly the way it is? And if the answer is, well, no, I suppose it's not, then they say, well, then let's just give up. Nobody can know anything. It's, it's impossible. We can't know any truth. No, we can be um, absolutely hungry for the truth and still acknowledge our human pro- uh, tendency to err. And I will, and I'll still make my point. Anything we believe that's in error concerning the truth of the of the gospel and the Bible, will harm us in some way. And I would say that's true for me too. And believing that's true for me drives me to study. It drives me to search the Scriptures because whatever I believe now that is in error, it is harming me. Yes. Okay, and I don't want to be harmed, so I'm going to keep studying until God corrects me. But uh, and, and the other thing is that once you find that you've been in error, by searching the whole counsel of God in humility, we need to repent and, and come to the truth, and not because we staked out a territory denominationally or um, in, in some, you know, adopting some system of theology, then we we, we have a stake in it, and it would be costly to say, well, I guess I was in error. But we need to be willing to do that if, if necessary. Yes.
2: Uh, thanks to the gentleman who, um, Dick it was, wasn't it, uh, Mark 4:14. 4, but I'm new to a sincere study of the Bible. Okay. And, okay, like before that in Mark 4, uh, verses 3 through 8, it tells, like you were saying, about a seed falls down on the path and a bird snatches it up. Yes. I think that's what you were saying before, but then it, it, it can fall on shadowless soil, but because there's no watering of that, it dies because it gets scorched and burned up. Yeah. And uh, also the seed could fall among thorns, and they choke that. Yes. Okay, but now what I'm, and, and this I take to heart personally, verse 8. It says, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even hundred times. Yes. And the next verse says, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." Well, I'm from Iowa, so I go for those ears of corn. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say about uh, what I'm trying to say about the study of the Bible is just what you were saying—that I need to uh, have some depth, some watering, some rich, loam soil. And I need to cultivate it. And I need to weave it. And the only way to do that is to study the Bible.
0: Good, Gretchen. Amen. <laughs> now, what what that uh, parable of the soils is doing, by the way, in, in the Gospels, is explaining the reality of, of what will happen. Okay, And when the Gospels are written, the church already existed. And this is literally what happens. The Gospel is preached. And some people just go, Satan takes away nothing. Some people will give mental assent. They'll say, okay, good. And they, they get enthused about it, and then they die out and they go away. And some people will make mental assent. Yeah, okay, I think that's right. And they'll join the church. And then the world just consumes them, and they become so worldly and carnal, but choked out, and pretty soon they fall away. And the rest bring up fruit uh, and, and uh, multiply it. I believe, and uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur teaches this as well, and I'm in agreement with him on this point, that the only tru- people that are truly converted are the last group. Okay? The truly converted, if they're watered, will always grow. It's the very nature, it's, it's like the seeds that you planted this spring. If you get the right soil, and you put the right seed in the right soil, and you water it, It grows all things being the way it should, well, especially when it's in Brian Beers' garden. <laughs> you see, it It never worked for me, but it, there was some reason in our yard we had too many trees and the tree roots kept going and sapping all the water out of the garden so I had to give up. And so it's the same way with Christians. Someone someone truly converted in every case, if they're given the, the water uh, of the Word and nurtured, they will grow Absolutely will. And so, get in the Word. does
2: that speak to fellowship
0: too? Yes, because we need one another uh, to admonish one another. Uh, sometimes, I have people argue about that and say, there's really no need to be involved with any other Christians. Um, to those who think that way, I would have you use a computer so you can do a multi word search. Look up the phrase one another oh, yeah. in the Greek. Right, you, or look it up in your, in your English Bible in a concordance. And you'll be surprised how many returns come back, how many verses you find. It'll be enough to convince you that you're in error if you think you don't need any other Christians. Plus, it's a, it's a joy. It's a wonderful joy. Diane Bukowski and I were just talking this morning about we've been in fellowship together. We're getting old. 30 Over 30 years. Over 30 years. We're some of the same Christians, Trumps. And we've known some people here for 30 years more or more. And I'm glad about that. I mean, that's something that God's doing. That, that, that's, it's a valuable thing to have people that have known you your whole Christian life. I'm gonna pray for you. Some are new. It's, just, it's, just, it's like a family. When you come into the family of God, it's like you've been here forever. Amen? Amen? <laughs> because God puts you in the family, so you're brothers and sisters. Well, thank you supporting We're uh, churches upstairs at 1030 afterwards. We're going to have a picnic out here and a special church picnic. God bless you.